There is a word in the English language that, on the one hand, can lead to great adventure and intrigue and discovery. And on the other hand, can also lead to great heart-wrenching heartache and unanswered questions. The word is simply, why? That word begins this week's question. Why does God allow pain and suffering in this world? If God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, then why? Why does he let bad things happen, especially, as we like to say, to good people? If God really is love, like the Bible claims him to be, if God is all-powerful, like the Bible claims he is, then why? Why all the pain and suffering in this world? It's a simple and logical question, is it not? And it is a question we've all asked, right? Years ago, after the cataclysmic Asian tsunami devastated millions of Asian people, we were then living in Houston, Texas. Our son Daniel was about five or six years of age, and so he turned to me one with com complete sincerity in his voice one day after watching the daily barrage of news about the tsunami. And at the breakfast table one morning, he said, Daddy, why? Why did God let that happen to all those people in Asia? Were they bad people, Daddy? See, even little children want to know the reason why. When my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer some 11 years ago now, we all asked why. Because there was no trace of hereditary cancer of that sort in her family. Why? I mean, we turn our heads up to heaven and say, really, God? Why us, why her, why now? When young Jonathan Morris drowned just a few feet away from me as I desperately tried to save him, I was so angry, so brokenhearted and bewildered at God. How could he let something like this happen to me, to us, on my watch? This is a question we all have asked at some point in life if we live long enough on this planet. And not even your pastor and his family are immune from the pain and the suffering that is part of this life. So I speak to you today, as I've already said, for those who came in late, my wife's youngest sister, Vander Lee, just passed away this morning. Cancer of another kind has taken over her body, but we were praying and believing God for a miracle.
And God sovereignly decided to give her the ultimate healing, which is to take her to be with himself forever. Now, I want you to be clear about the aim of this message. This message is not about solving the issue of pain and suffering. It is not about minimizing our pain and suffering. We may never make total perfect sense of it all. But I want us to learn that God cares about our pain and suffering. And he does have reasons for them. Dr. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the Swiss-American psychiatrist, gives us some insight into how to make some sense of the pain and suffering. The most beautiful people, she says, are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. She closes her statement saying, beautiful people do not just happen. In other words, pain and suffering have the ability to shape and bring out the best and most beautiful in us. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the book of Job in the Old Testament. The book is named for the main character, Job. Some people pronounce it Job because it's spelt the same, but it's Job. We don't know a lot about Job, but the first few verses of chapter 1 gives us a summary glimpse of his character. The Bible says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So the Bible says Job was a righteous man. He was a God-fearing man who shunned evil. Everybody say Job was a good man. Well, he was more than just a good man. He was a truly righteous man. He was also a rich man. In the ancient world, before coin and paper currency was invented, our, your wealth was measured by the amount of land and cattle that you possessed. And as you can see, Job was making bank. Not only was Job a righteous and rich man, he was also a family man. Job was a great husband and he was a great father. He was the husband of one wife and ten children, father of ten children. In verses 6 through 11, Job's wife began to take, his life began to take a turn for the worse. And it began with a conversation, surprisingly, between God and Satan. Satan came into God's throne room with the angels who probably came to present themselves to God in worship. And so God said, says to Satan, what's up, dude? 
Where you been? And Satan says, oh, I've been roaming around planet Earth, checking things out. And God says, did you check out my main man, Job? There's none like him in all the East, righteous and just in all his ways. God was bragging on Brother Job. And Satan's like, please. Look, God, if you bless me like you bless him, I might even worship you. How many of you know it's easy to worship God when you got bank? When you got bank, when you got bling, and when you're rolling, it's all good. We can shout and dance and praise the Lord. And Satan says, I bet if you take away his blessings, he will curse you to your face. And God says, you got to bet. It's on. You can do whatever you want to do to him and his family. You just can't take his life. And Satan said, it's a deal. And Satan left the presence of God to do his dirty work. And I think it was Martin Luther, the great German reformer, who made a commentary on this text of Scripture in Job. And he said, even the devil is God's devil. In other words, Satan can go no further than God's divine sovereignty permits. God says, Satan, you can mess with Job and his family and his possessions. You just can't take his life. So back to Job in dramatic fashion, the scripture describes Job receiving from his many servants one devastating news after another. His cattle were stolen on one day, and then a few hours later on the same day, the, in one home, one of the homes of his ten children collapsed when all of them were gathered, and there was feasting and merriment and joy, and, and the, a storm came and blew down the house, and all ten of his children perished in the rubble. Hours later, all the sheep and the camels were raided by thieves. All of this in one day. Can you believe it? They say when it rains, it. What would you do? Have a nervous breakdown and faint, right? Maybe you'd rush over to the house that collapsed on your children just to see for yourself and to check whether maybe there's some survivor and the servant didn't get it right. Even though your trustworthy servant already told you, everybody is dead, except for him. And then you'd shout and holler and collapse in despair and anguish and grief, right? Here's what Job did. After hearing all of the devastation, he stood up, he ripped his robe, which was an ancient sign of grief and despair, and then he fell on his knees to get this, to worship. Verse 20 of Job chapter 1. And then Job said these incredible words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
What manner of man is this? Is that not incredible? Who says that in the wake of multiple tragedies on every level? Who says that? All of this experience in one wicked, horrible day. And then the Bible says this about Job. In all this, verse 22, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's incredible. I'm not sure I could have been so blameless as Job. How about you? Am I by myself? Once again, in chapter 2 of Job, we find God and Satan having another conversation about Job. Verse 3 of chapter 2, again, God was bragging about Job, of how he handled the first set of ordeals, and how he remained faithful and full of faith in God, despite the fact that Satan took away from him everything that was precious to him except his own life and his own wife. Verses 4 and 5, Satan then pleaded with God to allow him to go after Job, inflicting physical pain and suffering in his mortal body, as if the emotional pain and suffering of losing all of his children and all of his possessions were not enough. That devil is something else. Verses 6 through 8, Satan did his dirty work, again by God's permission, and Job's skin broke out in painful rashes and boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And to add insult to injury, Job's wife then came to him while he was miserably sitting on the floor scraping the itches with a piece of broken pottery. And he said to her righteous husband, she says, I can't believe you're still trusting in God. Worshiping God. Why don't you curse God and die, fool? To which Job humbly replied, no, honey. Don't be like a foolish woman. Shall we accept only good from the Lord and not trouble? Once again, the scripture commended Job by saying, in all of this, Job did not sin with the words of his mouth. This is incredible. I don't know about you, but I think I probably would have found some other words to say. Some four-letter words that we heard growing up in the street. But not Job. Not Job. Once again, the scriptures commended Job by saying this, in all of this, Job did not sin with the words of his mouth. Perhaps, perhaps the most important lesson we can learn from Job is to temper our feelings with our faith and the facts. Faith and facts. You see, Mrs. Job, is, she was so filled with grief and anger that she, she won't and wouldn't and couldn't let herself think. She was 
She had already allowed herself to be so overwhelmed or consumed by her feelings, she set aside all the important facts, but not Job. See, Job felt every bit of her emotional pain and suffering, and now he's even feeling the physical torture of his rashes and boils, but somehow Job found a way to dig deeper within his soul and the recesses of his mind to remember the facts of his faith. You say, what facts of faith can we hang on to when we are feeling overwhelmed with grief, pain, and suffering? Here it is. The sovereignty and the goodness of God. These truths are what allowed Job to say in chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, to think and to say otherwise is to have an entitlement mindset. Job recognized early on that he came into this world butt naked. How many of you were born dripping with gold jewelry, designer clothes, titles to luxury cars, houses, and land? Anybody? I didn't think so. We all entered this world butt naked like Job. And if your family's got a little bit of money and a little bit of sense, they might put a little clothes on you when they put you in the ground. Even the very air we breathe is a gift from God. Therefore, everything we are and everything we have are from God. And if he gave it to us, guess what? He has the right to take it away or to allow even the devil to take it away. And when God takes our stuff or our health or our friends and relatives, he sometimes does that to find out who or what we really love. Who or what do we really trust? Who or what really satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts? And if the answer isn't him, then our affections are misplaced. And our faith is misplaced. See, that's the trouble with the stuff of earth. The stuff of earth is designed to draw us closer to the stuff maker and the stuff giver. The trouble is we fall in love with the stuff. And we end up putting our affections and our trust in the stuff and even in the people that God puts into our lives. And then it, they tend to crowd out God from his place in our hearts and minds, which is supreme trust, loyalty, and affections. I know this is hard news for some of us, and it is a shocking reminder to the rest of us, but it is the truth. 
And I'm trying desperately to share this truth with us, myself included, as lovingly and as gently as I can. Part of our problem is that we live in a culture that has evolved to become super sensitive and trusting of our feelings while ignoring our faith and the facts. My friend Ed Stetzer likes to say, facts are our friends. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, facts are our friends. We must never go back to the days of stoicism where we fail to acknowledge our feelings or we try to minimize our feelings. No, that is an equal and opposite error. During our deepest pains and sufferings, we must balance our emotional feelings with the truth about who we are and whose we are. Yes, we must cry. Yes, we must lament. Yes, we must feel every emotion that is warranted in the crisis, but then we must also remember the truth. Remember, emotions come and go, but truth remains a constant. Some of you need to write that down. Emotions come and go, but truth remains a constant. So let the truth about God and yourself encourage and console you. Pastor Charles Stanley of Atlanta said this, Our Heavenly Father understands our disappointment, suffering, pain, fear, and doubt. He's always there to encourage our hearts and help us understand that he's sufficient for all of our needs. And when I accepted this as an absolute truth in my life, I found that my worrying stopped, end quote. So let's go back to the original question. If there is such a thing as an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God, then why all the pain and suffering? Dr. Ravi Zacharias encourages us to look, look at it this way. He begins by quoting Dr. C.S. Lewis, who wisely said, it is, critical, it is critically important to examine the assumptions of every question. It is critically important to examine the assumptions of every question. When we say that there are such evils in the world that cause pain and suffering, aren't we also assuming that there is good in this world? And when we assume that there is good, aren't we also assuming that there is a moral law? After all, the moral law is the basis on which we judge or differentiate between good and evil, right? But if we assume there is a moral law, don't we also assume a moral law giver? Christians believe that moral law giver to be the God of the Bible. So you see, if there is no moral law giver, then there is no moral law. And if there's no moral law, then there can be no good. And if there's no good, then there is no evil. God has to remain in the paradigm for this question of pain and suffering to be real. Listen now to the Apostle Paul instructing and comforting the church in Rome. 
Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 8, which is a little bit longer than I gave you guys back in the back there. But Romans 5, 1 to 8, listen to this. Paul says to the church in Rome, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our what? Suffering. That's new. How do we do that? Because we know knowledge. Truth. He doesn't say, don't worry about the suffering or minimize the suffering or don't whine and cry or shout and holler and scream. No, he, he doesn't ask us to deny the pain and suffering or to minimize the pain and suffering. He just reminds us to remember the truth despite the suffering. We rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering, what? Produces something if we're paying attention. If we are Handling the suffering in the way that God wants to teach us to handle the suffering, the suffering will produce perseverance. And perseverance then produces something else, character. And then character produces something else, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Interesting that he would mention the suffering of Christ. Because in that, as you'll see later in this message is the hope of glory and why we can ourselves look at and understand and persevere through pain and suffering because of Christ. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you find it interesting, like I do, to know that the very plan of salvation, that is, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ includes the excruciating pain, suffering, and loss bore in the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. It's as if God is saying to us loud and clear, I can and I do identify with any and every pain, suffering, and loss that you feel because I've been through it with my own one and only son. See, if we focus only on our pains and sufferings, we lose hope in the redemptive purposes of God for the pains and sufferings that we endure. Let me say that again. If we focus only on our pains and our sufferings, we lose the hope in the redemptive purposes of God for the pains and sufferings that we 
endure. Some years ago, I became acquainted with a group of special moms across our city. Each of them had something in common with the other, which created a unique bond between them. Each of them had suffered the loss of a child due to gun violence in our beloved city of Chicago. And so they formed a support group to advocate for peace and to end the unnecessary bloodshed in our city. You're not going to believe the name of their group. Purpose over the pain. Purpose over the pain. That's the name of their group that they gave to themselves. They have all agreed that their child will not have lived and died in vain. And as they, as a collective group, will find and promote the purpose over the incredible pain that they feel every day when they wake up without their child. What is the purpose over your pain and your suffering? Listen to the Apostle Peter's teaching to those experiencing personal pain and grief. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Peter says this to the church. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of peace, the God of all grace who called you into his glory, eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, did you notice the mention of that old devil in this passage? Satan is still doing what he did to Job. Roaming around the earth looking for God's children and others to mess with. Did you notice that in this text in Peter? The devil is roaming around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. It's a reminder to the New Testament church of what that old devil has been doing since the Old Testament church was born. Satan is still doing what he did to Job and perhaps God is still taking bets in heaven while he brags on us to the angels and to the demons. The only question is, will we be found faithful? When it is our turn to suffer, will we be found faithful? Will we humble ourselves remembering that we came into this world with nothing and God owes us nothing but has chosen instead to unconditionally and sacrificially? 
when we decide by his grace to return that kind of love to him and to each other, despite our temporary trials, then Satan and his evil plans are destroyed and God and his plans triumph in glory. The world sees again and again and again an example of divine love that is played out on planet earth through God's people. C.S. Lewis said the best and the worst argument, or sorry, he says the best argument for the existence of God and the non-existence of God are Christians. The best evidence for the existence of God and the non-existence of God, the best argument we are, depending on how we decide to live out the faith once entrusted to us. If we humble ourselves, remembering that we came into this world with nothing, God owes us nothing, but has chosen instead to love us unconditionally and sacrificially, when we decide by his grace to return that kind of love to him and to each other, despite our temporary trials, Satan's plans will be defeated. And God's plan will triumph. The Apostle Paul confirms this thought when he wrote to the church in Corinth. I wasn't planning to read such a large passage, but it is so, so good, God wouldn't let me short you. So buckle up and pay attention. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Doug, I'm going to start in verse 4 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is just an incredible passage that sums up everything we have been learning already this morning. And again, I want you to see the mention of Satan and how he is juxtaposed to God and his grace and mercy. He begins by saying, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God, small g, of this world is who? Satan. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants to Jesus, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us because of our own weaknesses and the sins of this world that make us weak and sick and sorrowful and pain-ridden. But we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. The, one of the songs we sang today came out of this text. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because we carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Now watch this. So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. That's crazy. That don't even make sense. Unless you got faith. How is it that death results in life? Only in God's economy. 
or do we also see it in nature? When you put a seed in the ground, what does it have to do? Before it then comes back up in resurrection and all its glory producing fruit a million times more than what you put in the ground. I love the way God uses nature to teach theology. Paul says we carry around in our body the death of Jesus. You know, when we baptize people here, if you, if you remember what I say before I put them down, I say this, buried with Christ in baptism, what? Raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Paul is summing that up here when he says we carry around in our body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may also be revealed in us. And when is the life of Christ most revealed in us except when we go through suffering and pain? How many of you like to drink tea? Any tea drinkers here? I like tea. I prefer coffee, but I like tea. Tell me something. How do you, how do you make a cup of tea? Hot boiling water. Now, what's inside the tea bag is in the tea bag. But it ain't coming out unless you put it in hot water. The hot water reveals what's in the bag. What's in you? What's in you ain't coming out until you go through some hot water. Am I right about it? And like they say, if you don't like the heat, get out of the... Where are we going to go? So God wants us to prove our metal that he has poured into us. And that is proven. How do you prove metal? How do you prove whether metal is strong? You put it in the fire. Fire is hot. It burns. Think about the sun. The same sun that melts butter hardens the clay. It all depends on the substance upon which that receives the sunlight. What are you made of? Are you real? Are you a real Christian? If so, you have everything you need. We have everything we need to handle the disappointments, the pain, the sorrow, the suffering in this life. And that everything is that one, Jesus, who went ahead of us and took it on the cross. So Paul says in verse 12, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. 
I love that. Paul is in the midst of his own suffering. He's writing the church in, in Corinth because they're going through some suffering, and he wants them to know that he's suffering along with them, though he can't be with them in person. He's there in spirit. And in order for, the, for him and for them to understand how to deal with their suffering, he reminds them not only of what Jesus has done and the suffering that we will go through in this life, even on account of Jesus through persecution, he says we got to look beyond this life because this life and this world is not our final destination. We're just passing through. Okay? So he says, verse 15, all this is for your benefit so that, I love that. Every time you see so that, it means because of. He's getting ready to tell you the reason that he told you everything before. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So that means that if we are faithful in our suffering and handling trials in our lives and we reveal the grace and the glory and the love of God the Father in us through Christ, other people will see that and want to know, how did you get through it? How did you handle that? I couldn't handle that. We were just remarking about Job and his incredible suffering and we, I admitted to you, and we all agreed, we couldn't be like Job, right? Yes, we could. You see, God doesn't give us future grace. That's why it's hard for us to look at what Job went through and go, I couldn't do that. And you're right, you could not, I could not, you could not. But when our times come, when our time of suffering comes, that's when the grace comes. He doesn't give us future grace to kind of store it up. <laughs> no. It's like manna. Grace is like manna. Remember when, when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, coming from Egypt, trying to get to the promised land, and they started grumbling and complaining about the lack of food and water, and God says, I'm going to give you manna. Remember the instruction about the manna? Some people because they lacked faith and they, because they were greedy, they tried to hoard the manna for, t for the next day because they didn't trust that God would provide for the next day. So they tried to, and God says, listen, tell the, I told Moses, tell the people, only take what they need for them and their families for today. Tomorrow there's going to be more. But the people had a hard time trusting and believing God for tomorrow. So they tried to, and what happened to the manna? Remember? It got maggots. God, before the night was over, they woke up in the morning trying to get some of the stuff they hoarded. Maggots! Grace is like manna. God gives it to you when you need it. We, can't, we don't have a reservoir where we can store up grace. It is for the moment. And so grace reaches more and more people through us and it causes people to give thanks to the overflow, to the glory of God. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart, 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, just like my sister-in-law, her body was wasting away with cancer. And it was so hard for the relatives to, to tend to her and look at her in that condition because they remembered the former glory of her body. But God was doing something inside of her which they also got to see, that her faith was being renewed day by day in Almighty God through her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we don't lose heart. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this is the only way where we get a glimpse that Paul minimizes suffering in light of the eternal glory that is to come. That's the only way we see in Scripture to minimize the suffering on this earth. He says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the disappointments. Therefore, he says, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen. We've been memorizing Hebrews 11.1, 1, haven't we? We fix our eyes not on what is seen. That's where faith comes in. Faith and facts come together. We fix our eyes on what is seen, but on, on what is unseen. Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. All the gold, the bling, all the name brand clothes and shoes, that fancy house and leather couch you got, the nice car. I like it all. I like all that stuff. But I can't put my faith and trust in it. Our boys found out, can't put your faith and trust in those nice bicycles in the garage. Somebody might decide to take it. And they did. Didn't ask permission either. Kicked down the door, went in the garage, took $2,000 worth of bicycles and rode off. Bible says, moths and rust corrupt, steals break in, thieves break in and steal. Can't put your hope and faith in stuff. Use stuff, enjoy stuff, like stuff, but don't love it. Don't covet it. Don't put your faith in it. Our faith is in God. Our home is in heaven. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. So what more can I say to you, my beloved church? God's word is sufficient for our souls in every joy, in every sorrow, in every pleasure, in every pain. We can trust him. Even in our pain and suffering, he is trustworthy. And there is a greater purpose. And it is for the glory of God and even for our glory when we are translated into heaven. Let us stand and pray.